I'm sitting in my hotel room. It's late and it's been an epic first day at IVEX 23. That is the International Veterinary Emergency and Critical Care Society's annual national conference. It's huge. It's fun. So I warmed up my live podcasting and ironed out a few tech glitches today as I sat down with my first three of 20 spectacular guests to highlight some of the light bulb moments from their talks. We will be turning these into full-length podcasts, which we'll share over on our clinical series, which, if you're new to the Vet Vault, you can find at VVN, that's VVN for the Vet Vault Network, .supercast.com. But for now, here's a little taster of what we've been talking about. We have some highlights from our chat with Dr. Gregory Lysandro, talking about what's different when you're doing an AFAST or TFAST scan on a cat versus a dog and why we should stop doing something called flashing when we do our fast scans, which is where you scan until you find something and then you stop. Then we've got two very cool tricks from Dr. Alka Radloff for diagnosing GI foreign bodies and for treating interception non-surgically. And we wrap up the day with Dr. Reagan Wells talking about snake bite diagnostics. Oh, and if you like these and you want to try out a clinical podcast subscription, we have a huge special during IVEX. Shoot me an email at info at and I'll send you your 40% discount code. Okay, Dr. Gregory Lysandro. Okay. We're going to go through Global Fast, which is AFAST, doing mm-hmm. the abdomen in a fluid scoring system, mm-hmm. TFAST, which really has been kind of uh, streamlined to echocardiography okay. because VetBlue has taken over all the lung for the most part. And then vet blue, blue for brief lung ultrasound exam or brief lung ultrasound in emergency, however you want to do it. But that's our lung format. We like to always strive for doing all three together. And we call it global fast because you run into confirmation bias errors through selective imaging as well as satisfaction of search error through selective imaging. So I think if you go through my lectures, you go, oh, he's right. I just heard a radiologist or I heard another point-of-care ultrasound, and they did exactly what he said they were going to do. They fell into the trap of confirmation bias error or satisfaction of search error through selective imaging. When you start to pick and choose what you're going to image, you run into a lot of trouble. Always do both cavities. We're missing serious stuff by not doing both cavities, or we're uh, having inaccurate assessments, which can be potentially catastrophic for the patient if you go down the wrong path because you only looked in one cavity. So what, what's the term you use? Confirmation what? Confirmation bias error. Yeah, and the other one? The other one satisfaction. is satisfaction of search error where you stop at the first abnormality ah, that you see. Ah, 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 and that sense. is really common. Oh, oh yeah. pericardial effusion yeah, and you stop. Check the oh, pleural effusion. Yeah. Oh, mid-abdominal mass and you stop. Yeah, that, well, when you do a global fast, you have a mid-abdominal mass. I go into the client and go, you know what? There's a mid-abdominal mass. I'm concerned about that. But I did a global fast ultrasound. There's no obvious lung metastases. There's no pleural or pericardial effusion. The heart looks okay. There's nothing else where it looks like it's spread anywhere in the abdomen. It's localized disease. We should go forward with X, Y, and Z. But what does everybody do? Mid-abdominal mass goes in the room. I think it could be a malignant tumor. Patient has no chance for a workup. Mm. Especially if people are teetering and you use the word cancer. Vice versa, let's say you scan the chest because it looks like a pericardial effusion case and you go, yep, that's what it is. And then you get the, the clients go, yeah, let's drain it and you do the whole thing. So, and then you go, oh shit, there's also three things in the exactly. that we missed. And with Global Fast, you might have been able to know that in the first 10 minutes. 
would you do your global fast in addition to thoracic x-rays all the time to, I, I suppose, include another diagnostic modality into that? Or would you always start with that, um, the, the global T-fast, A-fast? Yeah, so I always start with the global fast. Yep. So I'm always doing a vet blue in there too. Mm-hmm. If you think about it, there's 15 views. If you spend 30 seconds of view, that's seven and a half minutes. Mm. And I can pretty much knock out a left vet blue and a right vet blue, that's eight transthoracic views in 45 to 60 seconds. That gives me six and a half minutes to get everything else done. And a fast, you can do very quickly as well. Mm. So we're always trying, striving to do the global fast. But as, if you do it as part of your physical exam, you have a huge amount of information ruling in and ruling out pretty obvious stuff pretty quickly. So it helps you streamline your diagnostic plan. The other way you can look at that is when I do a global fast, it gets me a baby step to more advanced imaging or radiography. And if it's a third or a half the cost of a radiograph, I get a lot better imaging for most of my patients because I can pick up so much more by using a global fast ultrasound approach than looking at silhouettes and outlines on a radiograph. But it still gets me there, so it's never gonna replace it. But once you understand the limitations that you have with your own proficiency in ultrasound too, and you start to learn that, that's why it's important to do your studies the same way every time and save your images. So cats, cats are just unique. When you go through a cat, they have some major differences. Like for instance, the heart is almost always against the diaphragm in a dog. But in cats, it's really variable. They have that little space. And if there's a gap with air there, you can't see their heart. But I would argue most of the time if they have heart disease or pericardial effusion, it moves their heart closer to the diaphragm so I can image it. Mm. But in dogs, it's pretty reliable. You're always gonna see what we call as the cardiac bump. You're gonna see the heart there. And when you get good at it, you know the left heart is against the diaphragm, I can look at my chambers there. So if I have a patient that's really having a hard time breathing, I can get echo information through the DH view without fighting all the air on transthoracic views. So, so that's one difference is the cardiac bump in a cat. Another one would be gallbladder can be bilobed and they have a very torturous common bile duct. Yeah. And it weaves in and out, right? And you could go, well, is that a mass? Yeah. Or is that the common bile duct? Mm. And, and is it normal to see it? Like in a cat, do you expect to see the common bile duct? You do. I don't know if I do. When <laughs> I'm, when I'm, <laughs> well, when it's torturous, it's easy to see. But, but that would mean there's a problem, right? No, not necessarily, because it could be normal. So it snakes through there, and they can have they have a torturous common bile duct that's normal. So when you look at that, you're going, well, is that a is that a vascular mass, yeah. or is that uh, this the common bile duct? And you can use color Doppler, right, to answer yeah, that question. Although you could still have neoplastic masses that are very cystic. So then it gets a little bit dicey there. There's rules of thumb for cats, like their common bile ducts should never be more than four millimeters. Well, I'm not a radiologist, so four and five millimeters is kind of hard. I'm just looking for obvious abnormal. But again, if it's really big and it measures big and the total bilirubin is normal, then don't over-interpret that and go, they have biliary obstruction. No, their total bilirubin is normal. So don't, don't fall into that trap. Going back to the bladder, they have lipid droplets. So cats have echogenic material in their bladder when they have concentrated urine. And it's because they put lipid in their urine, dogs don't. So you can get that snow globe effect in a cat that has a 1060 specific gravity. Well, you don't want to over-interpret that either. Is that the the norm? 
We can't so Yeah, they can the have lipid. You know, the cats are lipid. I probably just thought that was like... Fresh information. Yeah. Now so it'll sparkle down. So lipid won't shadow. And but it will jiggle just like sediment potentially. Yeah. And you know you're looking for mineralized sediment. So we always fan through all our organs too. Yeah. Because if we don't do that, then you're just getting a really thin sampling of the bladder. So you always want to fan. I was there for the session on intersusception. <laughs> I love your start. <laughs> can you spell it? Uh, I can. <laughs> Better than I can say it, I think. <laughs> <laughs> in preparation to getting to the interception, you talked about imaging of the suspected foreign body slash, you know, the, the case. Right. An obstructed GI obstructed tract GI of some tract. sort, and I want to investigate it. And I found interesting that the studies that you cited there. The first one I liked was, and I want to make sure I understood correctly, that repeat radiographs. Because like you get the one where you x-ray and you go, oh, is it, isn't it, do we cut, don't we cut? I know what we'll do, we'll hit pause, I'll re-x-ray it later tomorrow or something like that and, and see what's happening. And, and did I understand that the studies say makes no difference? Yes, when at least when you have experienced radiologists, difference. a critical care specialist and a first year resident, okay. a radiology resident, if they were given an inconclusive radiograph and they agreed that this was inconclusive, repeating that radiograph any time within a 22 hour period didn't improve the accuracy of okay. the diagnosis. Okay, so I suppose the way we do it, it'll be see if things are better maybe, like eight hours later, or there's less gas, things are, or see if my thing is moving along or something like that. But if it's a, I'm not sure, and it still looks the same six hours later, it's not going to give you any, any more clarity. No, no diagnostic clarity, no. Oh, that's interesting. There was a data collection study where it was just radiologists, mm who they retrospectively looked at radiographs for foreign body, mechanical foreign body obstruction, and the ultrasound was more effective, I think it was in 97% compared to something like 88%. Yeah, see, that's what I feel like. I feel like I'm way more accurate. And and it is easier with intestinal versus gastric. Yes. With ultrasound. Yes, much, much. Yeah. Yeah. So I think we have to qualify some of those comments. Okay. But I do feel like you're talking to an expert when you're talking to the radiologist. The reality is, is it's us who are not board certified radiologists. Yeah. And I think if you have ultrasound, some ultrasound skills, you should still continue to develop them. And I can tell you from my non-radiologist standpoint, you can ask me to have the client pay for radiographs. But if I feel that the accuracy in an intestinal foreign body obstruction is better with the ultrasound, mm-hmm. I would rather put that money to the ultrasound yeah. right from the get-go. So, now, you mentioned the stomach can be a bugger, the, the gastric foreign bodies. Mm-hmm. But then you talked about it, I wrote it down, pneumogastrogram. Right, pneumogastrogram. So that's really cool. If you have a, a foreign body in the stomach that is not lodged in the pylorus, mm-hmm. You can pass a nasogastric tube, remove all the gas and fluid that's accumulated, and then infuse a bunch of air using a syringe, and you dilate the stomach with gas, and then you'll have a contrast around that foreign body where you have gas that's usually radio-den. No. Oh, here we go. Here radio I, I always go. get confused. I go, okay, it's going to be more black. So lots of black in there. <laughs> yeah. so, so you have radiolucent gas surrounding the radio dense foreign body. 
Yeah. And that can be very rewarding to, to pick that out. When Do you, you say that. use it quite often? Or not often, but have you done it a yes, few times? Yes, 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 yes. And would you need to sedate them pretty heavily to get gas in there? Because it, no. it would be uncomfortable. Or no, you do it conscious. No, yeah. I mean, the nasogastric tube placement is more uncomfortable yeah, than, than putting some gas in the stomach. I suppose and remember, they're, they're already sitting with a already full stomach. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, so you, if you have something stuck in the pylorus, it may be a little more difficult to outline that with a pneumogastrogram. Mm. So it helps to do right and left laterals because yeah. on the left lateral, your pylorus ends up being at on the, the top. Yeah. On the top. So the gas will come up there and then you have that contrast yeah. with the surrounding soft tissue of the pyloric opening. Okay. Great tip. I like that a lot. The section of that talk that I found really fascinating was the, the water enema. Yes. Ultrasound guided hydrostatic reduction. Mm-hmm. Never heard of that before. Yes. And that is something that we're just realizing in veterinary medicine. It's something that's very commonly done in pediatrics. For for interceptions. For interceptions. Mostly lower GI interceptions. Lower meaning towards the colon? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which makes sense, right? So the principle, Foley, Foley's catheter you up, put a Foley up the back end? In, yeah, yeah, Foley through the rectum because you need to have the fluid mm-hmm. stay in the rectum. Yeah, you yeah. could use air as well. Yeah. And then you put a lot of air in there until a certain pressure is reached. Um, oh, which, or water in the case that you water. showed this morning. Okay. Yep. Yeah. And uh, if you have an ultrasound, you can visualize that section as it reduces yeah. and see that it has reduced. And you might have to, you, you might remove the water and it comes back again and they recommend trying a few times. Okay. Not just immediately saying it's a failure. And so there's a case report of, was it one or two, where they actually reported that. So now people are trying it more. Have you tried it? I have not. Not had the opportunity. No. And I wasn't clear from the talk. So it makes sense to me to say the closer you are to the colon, your interception the more likely yep. you're going to be able to get that pressure there. Yep. I, I, for a second, I thought on her talk that the case that she had was, was in the jejunum. Yes, Dr. Tolbert's case was actually in the jejunum, but they did successfully reduce yeah. that dog's interception. Which yeah. is a very cool trick to try if you can't do surgery yep. for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. Whether it's, well, probably to try anyway. Yeah, I would try it anyway try it before Because surgery. there's no harm, really. Right. But I think you're not going to tear anything. If you're going to tear something, it was going to tear. Yeah. So for me to host this talk, I feel a bit, usually I know enough about the topic to know what I don't know. But when we talk about your snakes, I know nothing. I'm obviously familiar with snakes. We have plenty of them where I'm from. But I don't know what snakes, well, I I watch the movies. I know you have rattlesnakes. Yep. (laughs) Is that what you're talking about? That's pretty much it. Is that it? Yeah. yeah, Really? That's the I I saw pit viper on on your talk. Is a pit viper the same as a rattlesnake? It is, yeah. Pit viper is a term that incorporates rattlesnakes. Okay. Mm-hmm. And what does, what does their venom do? Are they neuro? Because we've got Australian snakes. We've got neurotoxin. We have cytotoxic. We have hemolytic. And then we have anticoagulant. Yeah. That, that's the gamut of Australian snakes. What, so, what, what does the rattlesnake do? Right. So the rattlesnake can really do a combination of all of those. So oh, really? We don't, we don't classically have rattlesnakes that just do one of those. So... Also, like, I'm envious of your experience um, in Australia. Come hang out with us. Yeah, I would love to. I really would. Um, okay, so then the, the talk, we want to talk about bedside 
bedside tests, mm-hmm. diagnostic tests, which can be a challenge, right? And, yes. and I, that's, I was very curious to hear what you've got to say. So it is relevant totally to us because we're looking for the same things, right? Markers of all those things to mm-hmm. give an idea. What are you talking about in your talk? Which are the tests that you're discussing? Right. So very similar. You know, the classic tests, uh, probably the most useful test yeah. here in this part of the country is a blood smear. And what we can gain from that is we can look for some of the cytotoxic principles. So echinocytes have been described. Do you see echinocytes? Oh, no. Tell me more. Yeah. So, so, so sorry, this is the cytotoxic. So this is for the one that's going to cause a big, horrible yes. muscle breakdown. Correct. I see. Yeah. Painful okay. wound. Yeah. But we can also see echinocytes without the significant wound. So it can be helpful for us to sort of confirm okay. there is a rattlesnake bite. I, I can't. I remember the term echinocyte, but I'm the drawing spiky. a blank. It's like a okay, that's it. That's it. Yep. That's it. Like a yeah, it just looks like a sphere with a bunch of spikes all over it. And what that's from is uh, some of the enzymes in the venom that just poke holes in the uh, red blood cells. It can also cause spherocytes, which yeah. looks very similar to immune-mediated anemia. So that can also that, that's something I'll be talking about. It can be a little confusing for some of our practitioners who see these cases days later and they're hemolyzing and they think, oh, they must be having an immune reaction to the antivenom when really it's probably active venom in circulation. And so the treatment may be and, and would that potentially be the only thing that they're showing? So, it'll, yep. it'll ju- so they could come in without the oh, weakness or vomiting or sickness? Yeah, w- w- typically those cases are have been treated for a snake bite. So they still oh, have okay. a wound. Yes, you okay. know yeah, yeah, yeah. they were in yeah. somewhere, yeah. received antivenom. And then a few days later... The, the PCV drops. Correct. They, they would present like an IMHA, yeah. yeah. That's like our, on the east coast of Australia, we've got a red belly black snake. Okay. They, they'll do that. They do that? They'll do that. They sneaky like that. Did they well. do it acutely? Or? So it is, you do look for spherocytes. I've never heard of the echinocytes. I'll have to talk to, to some of the Australian specialists to see that whether we should be looking for those. Um, yeah, I but imagine you'd... Yeah, it you'd make, would make them. sense. Yeah, because yeah. we even see, you have to be careful because with a severe... Let's say, you know, bee envenomation, you can see a few echinocytes. Mm-hmm. So, you know, in a really, I remember being an intern and not knowing what I was looking at with yeah. just a, you know, a typical allergic reaction. And I thought, oh, I'll do a blood smear and that should sort it out. Yeah. And there were echinocytes, but there weren't too many of them. Okay. It turns out it was just an allergic reaction. It wasn't a rattlesnake bite. Okay. So, so you will, because echinocytes, I, it's not something that's been on my radar at all. So mm-hmm. could allergic reactions do them as do that as well? Yes, but they typically are not a very high percentage of the cells. So okay. with a rattlesnake bite or a severe pit viper envenomation, and other pit vipers will do this. So I suspect mm, you guys sounds, may see yeah, this yeah. as well. It's a pretty good percentage of the red blood cells are affected. And that could be acute as well? Yes, it's it not, is not, acute. So that's not that the, the delayed one. Correct. I like the name of kinocide. I was trying to, when you said the spiky ones, but you know what an echidna looks like? No. A, a little Australian animal? It's a little spiky thing. Is it? A little spiky I animal. wonder so if that's I'm, the I'm origin gonna, of Yeah, the I wonder what, it, what, yeah. <laughs> what that means. So if I see lots and lots of little echidnas on my blood smear, oh, that's cute. I might go, oh, maybe you're a, you're a red belly black. Mm. Yeah, I'll have to, I'll ask Claire Sharp. Yeah. She and I are doing a lecture together. I saw together, that, yeah. So, so yeah. definitely worth we'll asking. see what she thinks. That's really cool. Why do you want to underline that and, and how would you recommend, I won't necessarily say this is for the Australians, but for the U.S. listeners, mm-hmm. how should they be using it? So this isn't new knowledge. Almost anybody that treats snake bites here in, in the U.S. 
it's going to say, oh, that's a snooze. I know that. What is new is that we can use this in cats um, as well. So cats are much more resistant on like a milligram per kilogram basis to the venom. But we did just finish a study. It's going to be presented in abstract session here in the general abstracts. Looking, it's an in vitro study looking at multiple different species of rattlesnake venom incubated with cat blood. And we confirmed that it does happen, but it requires a much higher concentration of venom to induce the same degree of echinocytes. So I think it's just important to know that you're not crazy if you're looking at these in cats, and hopefully soon there'll be some evidence to support that.